Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. It's the sound we all dread as we try to fall asleep at night. But now that sound is a little more sinister with the news that a mosquito-borne virus is spreading up the country's east coast and across to South Australia. Cases of a rare tropical virus known as Japanese encephalitis. Seven Australians have been confirmed as having mosquito-borne Japanese encephalitis. Japanese encephalitis detected in four states. So how worried do we need to be about this virus? And how do we possibly avoid ever being bitten by a mozzie in an attempt to not catch it? Today, we break down everything we need to know to arm ourselves against another microscopic invader. Just when you thought worrying about a virus was coming to a close here in Australia, something else has popped up to cause some concern. A rare tropical virus that arrived in Australia in the 1990s and is usually only found at the country's northern tip has started to spread south as far as Victoria and South Australia. Japanese encephalitis was first documented in Japan in 1871, hence the name. It's rarely fatal, but there have been two deaths in this current outbreak and several people have had to be treated in hospital, some of those in intensive care, including a child. A recent autopsy of a Victorian man aged in his 60s revealed that he had died from Japanese encephalitis, and a man in his 70s also died in New South Wales. Health authorities recently discovered that JEV, as it's known, had been spreading pretty much undetected in piggeries down the east coast of Australia, only realising it when they started to see stillborn or very sick piglets. They were quick to note that you cannot catch it from a pig, either by being near one or by eating one, only by a mosquito that has bitten the infected pig who then goes on to bite you. It's now been found circulating in more than 40 pig farms across Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, staff who work closely with the animals given a vaccine for protection. It can also spread through horses. There's a theory that it came into the country either via mozzies pushed across from one of our Southeast Asian neighbours or from a water bird who had it and then migrated to our shores. But why has it decided to head so far south this year? And what do we need to know to protect ourselves against it? Professor Jason McKenzie is an international expert on flavivirus and norovirus replication and pathogenesis at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Professor, exactly what kind of virus is JEV? This is a virus that's different to SARS. So everyone, of course, has heard about SARS in the headlines. This is a virus that's more related to dengue virus, which many people in Australia have heard about and also Zika, which sort of hit the headlines around 2015, 2016. So it's one of these viruses that is transmitted via mosquitoes. So you can only really get the infection via a mosquito bite, 
it's not one that we can sort of pass amongst ourselves. So things like masks don't help in terms of the prevention. It's really just trying to stay safe and away from mosquitoes. It's a virus that is very harmful because the virus can obviously infect the body. When it gets into the brain, which is one of the, the unfortunate consequences of infection, it can cause a lot of harm. And we have seen two fatalities um, in Australia due to that sort of invasion, if you like, into the brain and the complications associated with infection in the brain. The virus itself, generally not found within Australia. It's mainly found within Southeast Asia. But we do occasionally get the sort of introduction of the virus into the far north of Queensland. We've never really seen it down as far as Victoria or into New South Wales. Can we read into the fact that the two people who have passed away from Japanese encephalitis in Australia in this current outbreak are both older men? Is that something we need to be aware of? Certainly the elderly. In all cases, the elderly do unfortunately suffer from many infections a little bit more than, than the young. And we actually know with a lot of the related viruses, so Japanese encephalitis belongs to a family called the Flavy viruses. And we know from a number of the other flavy viruses that infect the brain that the elderly are quite susceptible. So there's another virus called West Nile. It also infects the brain. We've seen a lot of that in the US and certainly a lot of encephalitis in the elderly populations. So I think it's just a fact of a waning immune response and sort of declining ability to, to sort of combat those infections. The male side of it, I don't know. There are some infections where there is a predominance for one sex over the other uh, for a variety of reasons we don't probably fully understand. Um, a lot of hormones probably play a role. In this case, I haven't heard of any prevalence for elderly males over anything else, but certainly the elderly themselves will suffer a little bit more. Now, I know its origins here in Australia are a bit of a mystery. Could be water birds, could be mozzies themselves, who knows. But do we have some understanding as to why it's spreading so far south this year? Because normally it's very much just a top-end kind of issue, right? I think it's just been one of these factors where particularly the increased rain, the flooding, all of those factors have sort of come together, particularly down in New South Wales, just getting increased water pooling. You're getting a lot more mosquitoes coming down. And yeah, we have noticed a lot of migration of water birds coming down as well. So I think it's just one of those rare times when all of those factors come together. Unfortunately, probably the incursion was around where there are a lot of pig farms and we do know that pigs are the amplifying host. So that's really driven a lot of the, the high levels of the virus within the area. So that's, again, just one of these rare factors that have just driven it um, in our local environment, which we wouldn't normally see, but it's probably the rainfall, the mosquitoes, the birds, and then having the pigs on hand as well. So just a whole bunch of factors that have unfortunately been presented at one time that have enabled the virus to sort of take hold could we maybe sum that up by saying climate change? Uh, climate change, is, yeah, look, we can, but it's a very, very multifactorial sort of syndrome, if you like. There's a lot of factors that have to come together and play its part, but certainly I think the climate has played its part here. You know, coming off the back of it, well, hopefully coming off the back of a global pandemic as we seem to be at this point in time, everyone, of course, is worried hearing about another virus now doing the rounds. Obviously, this one is not going to spread as fast because it does require you to be bitten by a mosquito in order to get it. But are we looking at another potential pandemic here? I don't think so myself um, because of those factors that you've suggested. So I know a lot of people now in those areas are taking precaution. They're fogging around the pig farms. I mean, in the last resort, you could actually cull a lot of the pigs, um, which they do actually do that in Southeast Asia, and that does limit the spread. So I think it is a, it's more of a virus that can be contained rather than a respiratory or aerosol, which really can 
be spread uh, wide further into our community. So I, I can't see this one as being a pandemic, a little small epidemic outburst that we've seen for sure, but not a pandemic. Now, unlike something like COVID or flu, which tends to spread a lot faster during the colder months when we're all a little bit closer confined, would this be a case of being one that might drop off or finish in the colder weather, seeing as mozzies don't tend to be as active in the colder months? Yeah, I think you're 100% correct. You know, we know a lot of mozzies lay dormant over winter. And so if you take out that vector, as it's called, and it can no longer bite you, then it won't be passing on the infection. It would be interesting to see what happens in the following summer and if the virus has been able to sort of lie dormant in eggs or so of the mosquitoes, whether it's still sort of in that domain, if you like, within New South Wales. But I would say that over winter we won't see too many infections, that's right. As you heard earlier, many piggery workers are now being vaccinated against this virus in order to safely go about their job. But do we need to protect ourselves from it too? Dr Michelle Giles is Professor and Clinical Appointments at Alfred Health, Monash Health and the Royal Women's Hospital. She's an infectious diseases physician who's able to provide specialist consultation on all aspects of general infectious diseases. Dr, have we had a Japanese encephalitis vaccine in Australia for a while? Yeah, so we actually, we have two vaccines available in Australia and they're called Imagev and JESPECT. But in fact, both of those vaccines have been around a long time and we've had recommendations for a long time for particular groups of people. So we've been advising and vaccinating people in Australia who are some examples of those groups, are laboratory workers who may be dealing with Japanese encephalitis in, in the laboratory setting for travellers. So it's not an un common travel vaccine. So if people have been traveling to areas where there is endemic Japanese encephalitis and they're staying in high-risk areas or they've been wet season or they're for a month or more, then we have been recommending they get the vaccination. And also there's been outbreaks in the Torres Strait. So we have been using the vaccine in populations at risk in the Torres Strait. So, so the vaccines themselves that we are using or recommending at the moment with the recent outbreak of Japanese encephalitis, they're not new and they have been used before. The difference here is we are now considering them for populations at risk in areas of Australia where we haven't previously needed to think about the use of the vaccine. Well, that's going to lead me to my next question with just how far the virus has spread this time around due to the floods, etc. Should we be rolling out this vaccine to more people? The first thing that we really need to understand better is uh, how widespread the virus is. So what I mean by that is, you know, it's been reported in piggeries and there is ongoing work being done now to test birds, to test mosquitoes and to test, obviously, pig populations and find out exactly how extensive it is. We, we want to make sure that people who are at risk are protected, but at the same time, we don't want to unnecessarily use or recommend a vaccine if someone is not at any risk. So I think we've got to get that balance right. And the way we get that balance right is to get more information. But in the meantime, whilst we're getting that information, we need to protect those who we know are already at the highest risk. So that is certainly something that's being considered. Populations who live in areas where we've found Japanese encephalitis, an approach in the future may be to vaccinate whole populations. That's certainly how vaccine has been used in other countries overseas, in other countries that have 
introduced vaccine programs where they have endemic Japanese encephalitis, they've recommended those for populations. And that may be something we need to consider. But I think at, at the moment, we need more information to make sure that we're making the best use of the vaccine. What's the worst case scenario for someone who contracts Japanese encephalitis? We've seen two people now pass away from it. What exactly does that do to somebody that leads to them needing ICU attention and losing their lives to this? So I think the important thing to remember is that the severe illness caused by Japanese encephalitis doesn't happen to everybody who's infected. So the rate of encephalitis is quoted some literature quotes it at 1 in 200, some it's 1 in 250. So that means that not everyone who gets infected will actually have symptoms and not everyone who gets infected will have the most severe form of the illness. So when you asked about the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, of course, is the encephalitis. It's an infection in the brain and it can lead to death. We have unfortunately had deaths already. And the other thing that can happen is if you survive, because there is no specific treatment for the encephalitis or for this viral infection, if you survive, you can be left with long-term disability, neurological disability, and that can occur in between 30 and 50% of survivors who have the encephalitis. But by far and away, the vast majority of people infected with this virus have no symptoms or only mild symptoms. So in the case of Japanese encephalitis, it seems it's be alert but not alarmed. Agriculture Minister David Littleproud giving this advice on ABC Radio. The best thing they can do is is obviously use as much repellent as they possibly can. They can also uh, have uh, clothing that covers up most of their arms and legs uh, and basically remain vigilant. That's That's the extent of it large number of people who do get contracted, um, it doesn't become as serious as it was deadly, but it is something you cannot take uh, lightly. So what we're saying, particularly those in high risk areas, uh, to be to be very careful about this. And at this time, the best thing you can do to arm yourself with uh, out of vaccine is really uh, to, to use as much repellent as you possibly can. So get your mozzie spray out and use it as much as you need to to make sure the little buggers don't bite you. Keeping in mind, they are most active at dusk and dawn and will be in higher concentrations around water sources. You also need to wear light-coloured, loose clothing because mozzies are attracted to darker colours and are able to bite through clothes to the skin if it's tight-fitting enough. If you are spending some time outside, light up a mozzie coil. Turn on the zapper or use a citronella candle or torch, but don't rely on that alone. Double up with a spray and clothing. If you do start to experience flu-like symptoms like a fever, headache or vomiting, then maybe go get checked out by your GP. There are tests that can be done to see if it's flu or COVID or Japanese encephalitis. If those symptoms escalate to include things like neck stiffness, disorientation, dizziness, convulsions, which occur more frequently in children, and or paralysis anywhere between 5 and 15 days after being bitten by a mosquito, get to the doctor immediately and get tested. And remember, before you panic, less than 1% of people who contract Japanese encephalitis will show any symptoms at all. And around 20% of that less than 1% will end up having serious neurological issues. A really, really small risk, but a risk nonetheless. So spray up and stay safe. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Jacob Round.
Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.